morning. We have quite a treat in that the Bible reading takes up nearly two full pages. Um, so let's rejoice in God's word and having it in our hands. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter into his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain today, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Everywhere I go, I have to lower the mic <laughs> for some reason. Uh, if, you, um, 
If you have any regard for me at all, it would be helpful for me if you did not mention that I said that this was the last Stokes baby. Um, I get, it was a joke, I get in enough trouble from my pastor as it is. It's lovely to see Abby with us this morning. A long time ago, probably in the 80s or 90s, you know, all the decades flow into one when you get to a certain age. But many years ago, I went to speak uh, at a Harvest Festival weekend at a church in Bristol. It comprised a Saturday night meeting and two services on the Sunday. And uh, so I was there on Saturday night, and uh, I was to stay overnight. I was led to believe in one of the church families. It's always a slightly nerve-wracking when you have to do that when you're a visiting preacher. Uh, anyway, um, I, I was introduced to the gentleman with whom I was staying. Uh, it was a man of about 70, a uh, retired gardener. Uh, he'd been retired about five years. And I was taking him back home uh, in my car, uh, expecting that his wife had gone on ahead to make a fantastic supper for the visiting preacher, only to discover that this gentleman... It was a widower, his wife had passed away some years earlier. So I wondered what kind of hospitality I was heading for. Um, and then we went into the kitchen, he went into the kitchen to make a cup of tea, and I was looking around his lounge, being a bit nosy, looking at the books that he read, and there in the corner was a chair that was obviously his chair, because next to it was a little table that was his devotional table. And on the devotional table were the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, and I inevitably asked him about this. And he said that after retiring at the age of 65, he taught himself New Testament Greek without the aid of any lesson. And then he had one lesson and, and after that taught himself Old Testament Hebrew because he wanted to read God's word in the languages that it was first transmitted to God's people uh, in the original languages. And I felt rebuked and humbled and a little bit unspiritual. <laughs> because most of us come to the Bible really with a slight disadvantage. If you've been raised in a Hebrew-speaking home uh, to God-fearing Jewish parents, you might come to the letter to the Hebrews with a slight advantage, if not a significant advantage, because Hebrews, the, this book that we're looking at on Sunday mornings, is packed full of images and references and themes that are rooted in the Old Testament. Here in this uh, letter, you'll find references to Adam, to Abel, to Cain, to Enoch, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses and others. You'll find creation, you'll find enslavement in Egypt, you'll find exodus from Egypt, you'll find life in the wilderness, you'll find the tabernacle in the desert, you'll find sacrifices, you'll find lambs and bulls and heifers and lots of blood. And uh, when you come to the letter to the Hebrews, we're a little bit like Americans being introduced to their first game of test match cricket, a game that goes on for five days and may result in no results at all. <laughs> Over there is a short mid-off. And there's a long on. And there's a deep fine leg. And here's a silly mid-on. 
And here's the third slip, but next to him is not the fourth slip, it's the gully. (laughs) And most painful of all, over here, is a man standing at square leg. Imagine that. It's a disadvantage, isn't it, if you've been brought up to baseball and now you're introduced to test match cricket. Well, anyway, Pastor Nigel's been introducing us to this fascinating world. We've, we, we began with God speaking in times gone by to the Jewish ancestors, to the, through the prophets, through visions and dreams of different kinds. But in the end of this wonderful period, in this last day, he has spoken to us by his son, who is the exact representation of his, of his person and is the radiance, the shining forth of the glory of God. And then last week we, we thought of the, the fact that Jesus is our king and our captain and the brother we need to save us from eternal death and give us eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's final word of revelation. He makes sense of life in this world and he makes sense of life in the world to come. And he does so by getting his hands dirty. In Nigel's memorable phrase, he, he, he gets his hands dirty, he comes into our world, uh, and he suffers death, and, and, and he enters into resurrection, and he ascends back into the glory of heaven so that we might have life through him. Now today, we're going to take another couple of steps in this journey through this wonderful world of God's revelation of himself to us in Jesus I've got two main headings this morning. The first one is this. Avoid the worst of all conditions. As we are seeking to understand the importance of God's word, first of all, we need to avoid the worst of all conditions. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And in verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, Back in uh, chapter 2, you may remember that the writer reminds us of the opening chapter's of the Bible, uh, we looked at Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 looks back to the Garden of Eden. It tells us of God's original purpose for humanity. Uh, Adam and Eve were created to spread the Garden of Eden to every part of the world. They were to rule over the world, they were to have dominion over the world in order to establish. Eden-like conditions everywhere to make it a place, the whole world was to be a place of God-glorifying beauty under the care and supervision of our first parents. Of course, they fell into rebellion. They turned away from God's word. Uh, They they fell into God-denying selfishness. And so, because of God's judgment upon them and upon the world, we have inherited a broken world. A world that's painful as well as lovely and exciting. We have this dualistic kind of thinking, don't we? We admire a sunset and then we grieve over cancer. We, we love to see a newborn baby coming into the world all healthy and wriggling and pink. At the same time, we hate to see friends 
being placed in the grave or in the crematorium. And what you can see when you believe the gospel is that though that original purpose was disfigured and broken, God in Jesus is in the, the business of making a restoration. He's entered the world, he's done his work, and has returned to heaven where there is a man who is reigning over the world. Jesus, the second Adam, is the man who is reigning over the world. We don't see it particularly clearly, but it will be perfected one day when he returns. So humanity, the purposes that God uh, sought to establish in Adam and Eve, those purposes have been wonderfully restored in Jesus. Now right after that, after that chapter 2, our author moves on to the time of Moses. He moves on from the time of Adam and Eve and he moves on to Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You have it there in your, in your um, program. Please, please look at that. And he urges them, as he does several times in this wonderful letter, he urges them to consider Jesus, chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. And he calls Jesus two things. He calls him an apostle, and he calls him a high priest. Our faith... Our confidence is that Jesus is those two things amongst many others. Apostle means that Jesus was a sent person. Apostle means a sent one. And uh, he, he was a man with a mission. High priest means that he was a man with a ministry. And that he came to represent us in the presence of God. He is a man who is a sent man with a mission. He's also a man with a ministry. He's a high priest. He deals with God on our behalf. Now, he contrasts him here or compares him with Moses. Moses was an apostle. He was a wonderful servant in the household of God. He was sent to help the Jewish race, race of slaves. He was sent to unite them and to make them into a wonderful nation. He was sent, you may remember, to go before the emperor of Egypt, the great Pharaoh, uh, um, and getting his hands dirty by entering into a very dangerous place. He could have been slaughtered by Pharaoh's anger. But Moses goes, he gets his hands dirty, he goes before the face of Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Let my people go. I want you to deliver the Jews from slavery into a place of liberty and freedom. Now these verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, summarized Moses' greatness by saying he was faithful to the one who appointed him as a servant in all of God's household. Verse 5. Moses had a God-given purpose and a God-given greatness. The mighty thing was that he was faithful. God gave him a mission, and apart from a few wobbles here and there, he was faithful to that mission. Moses finished strong. He didn't chicken out when it was painful. He served the Lord and he served his house, his people, until his dying breath. And as I was thinking about this this week, it occurred to me that most of Moses' ministry was in the desert. Forty years he taught and cared for and shepherded 
the people of God, and he never got to the promised land. Uh, his ministry was entirely conducted from the tent. And yet he finished strong, didn't chicken out, didn't give up. He kept going to the end. He was faithful. God is more impressed, my friend. God is more impressed with strong finishers than impressive beginners. When I was younger, I used to run a, the mile race occasionally. And uh, I remember running a mile race in a holiday camp where my parents had taken me for a holiday. And I was heading the race after one lap. It was a four-lap race. I was heading the race. I came in pretty well last because at the end of the race, my strength was gone. My breath was gone. I was an impressive beginner, but I was an unimpressive finisher. I did finish, actually. A guy came up to me afterwards and he said, well, I was looking at you by the way you started. I said to my wife, that little guy there, he's bound to win. <laughs> I was nowhere when it came to the last 100 yards. Now, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 are showing the massive importance to God of faithfulness, of finishing strong. Adam was unfaithful to his calling. Moses was faithful to his. But the great example of faithfulness is Jesus. Consider Jesus. Not only that, he was faithful not as a servant in God's house, as Moses was, but as a son. And as the builder of the house, he was the architect and the builder of the house. The Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's house and, and his beauty and his glory runs through every stone. And just as when you admire a house, you think of the builder, the one who designed it, the one who built it. You think he's the one with the praise and the glory. You don't give the prize for the greatest architect in the world to the house. You give it to the man who built the house, who designed it. And just as Moses was, is praised because he was a great faithful servant of God, the Lord Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. He is the finisher. He is the completer. He is the designer. He is the house, as it were, personified. Well, the Hebrew Christians, these Hebrew Christians were thinking of giving up, of abandoning Christianity. They were considering turning their backs on Jesus. They, they were considering leaving their new way of life to return to their old way of life. And this writer is saying to them, why would you go back to Moses, to the servant, when Jesus is the perfection of everything that Moses stood for. Why would you do that? Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus was the builder and the completer of the house. Moses was faithful. Jesus was perfectly faithful. And you Hebrews should be faithful and make sure, verse 6, that you finish strong. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if... If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Holding it fast. What does it mean to finish strong? Well, it means that we've got to avoid the worst of all conditions. That's absolutely essential. Now, chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13 is one of the most nerve-wracking passages in the whole Bible. And it's not for the faint-hearted. It takes us back 
to that period after the Jews left Egypt through the Exodus, through the Red Sea, and were being led by the Lord in the form of a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They were being led through the Sinai Peninsula by God. God had given them through Moses some good news. It was encapsulated in a promise. It's called in this passage the good news. The good news was, I've set you free from Egyptian slavery and I'm taking you to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey where you will enjoy my rest. Calls it his rest. God is a God of rest. He created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Doesn't mean he was tired. It means he actively enjoyed his finished work. That's what rest is. Actively enjoying the fruits of your labor. And uh, then when the, the, the children of Israel are heading for the promised land, God calls it his rest because they will be delivered from the bondage and, and, and labor of slavery into a place that is their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was good news for them. But look what happened. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. They began to distrust God's promises. They began to abuse the preachers who were preaching those promises. They decided that they were better off going back to Egypt, to slavery, rather than go forward into the wilderness armed only with God's promise, with the good news. They stopped believing God's word and they started looking back to their old way of life as infinitely preferable. And verse 8 says they hardened their hearts in the rebellion. It was in the desert. Things were hard. There wasn't enough water. There were two and a half million of them plus sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels. There wasn't enough water. There wasn't enough food. Life suddenly seemed pain painful and uncertain. So they decided that the poverty of Egypt was preferable to the promise of God. And some of you here this morning will do exactly the same. Not only did they not finish strong, they didn't finish at all. Because it says their bodies fell in the wilderness because God swore that they would never enter his rest. You see, when you begin to harden your heart to the gospel, to God's word, especially to its promises, you put yourself in a dangerous place. Those who harden their hearts to God's character and God's promise of life and rest in a future promised inheritance, those who harden their hearts to that will not enter the promised joy. Th their bodies, as it were, will fall in the wilderness. And most people who do this, not all of them, if not all of them, most people who do this start well. And then when things get tough in the Christian life or Christian life doesn't seem so appetizing anymore, they decide that their old way of life has more to offer them than the promise of a new way of life. They begin to feel that the Christian life has not delivered on its promises. So why not go back to what I had before? 
One of the things I've been doing in the last few weeks is um, I've been trying to digitize my old prints, my old photographic prints. We have 25,632 photo albums. Well, I exaggerate slightly. They're full of all sorts of photographs, many of which I can't even remember where they were taken. So I'm plucking out the ones that are relevant and, and interesting, and, and I've been taking pictures of them, digitizing them, and saving them on a hard drive. And, and I've been, I took a picture a couple of weeks ago uh, that was from the days when I used to develop my own black and white prints. I had a little cubby hole under the stairs and I developed my own black and white photographs. And I found one that was taken in 1971. It was of the West Allotment Young People's Fellowship. Now you've all heard of West Allotment, <laughs> one of the greatest towns in the northeast of England, not far from Whitley Bay. It's a little mining village, about six rows of terraced houses. And uh, I had, uh, every Sunday evening, I had a, a little YPF. And I came and we taught them the Bible. And there on this black and white photograph was a picture of this YPF. There were probably about 12 or 15 of them. I could hardly identify one of them that had remained faithful to the gospel. Their bodies, as far as I know, have fallen in the wilderness. They said that they, they were enthusiastic about the Christian life. Many, most of them were baptized. And then there came a point where they turned back to their old way of life. They turned their backs on Jesus. And just looking at that photograph humbled me and uh, rebuked me and challenged me. And saddened me. They were unable, verse 19, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I remember when I was towards the end of my ministry in Chessington, a man came to Chessington from Australia. He was a very, very bright man. He was a lecturer in philosophy. Came to my home group. I was scared to death. <laughs> this guy came to my home group. I've never met such a bright man. He was really great in terms of his contribution to the home group. I heard two or three years later that he turned his back on Christianity altogether. His primary reason was it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And he went back to his old way of life. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. How long does it take for this tragic thing to happen? Well, verse 13 says it takes a day. One day, maybe when you feel discouraged or a bit cynical, you begin to think that the gospel doesn't work. Life has not turned out as you thought it would. Uh, pain has become a daily concern. People have let you down. People in the Christian church have let you down as they let the Lord Jesus down and you begin to think maybe God isn't trustworthy. Maybe these promises, maybe this Bible is not as trustworthy as I was told. And then that continues for another day until your heart begins to harden and your mind convinced that you were better off with your old way of life than with the promise of the gospel. You're leaving Christianity and you're going back to your old country. Now this is why 
we have preaching. It's why we have life groups. It's why most of us expose our minds every day to the teaching of the Bible. Because, verse 13, we need to be encouraged and exhorted to keep going and to keep trusting and to keep believing every single day. We, we, we must beware of any single day in which we begin to neglect and disbelieve the promises of God. Because we need to do everything we can for ourselves and for each other to avoid the worst of all conditions, which is to harden our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to continue to harden our hearts and to fail to finish. So that having made a promising start, we make a disappointing end. So that's the first thing I'd like to share with you this morning. The second one is briefer. Avoid the worst of all conditions. Where are you at with that? Where are you at with that personally? Are you working hard to keep alive the joys, the promises, the impact, the strength, uh, the power that the word of God has upon your life? Or are you like that person that we heard about a few moments ago who looks in the Bible as in a mirror, learns some stuff and then immediately goes away and says, that's nothing to do with me practically. The second thing is accept the best of all invitations. Accept the best of all invitations. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus is not only the apostle, the sent one, the one who came uh, to lead us out of the land of slavery into the land of promise, he's also the high priest of our confession. If you glance at chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, you see a very interesting passage. Let me just read it for you. Chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now these verses are often taken to mean that, uh, that God's word is able to cut through the rubbish of our thinking and expose what lies beneath the surface. And there's an element of, uh, of truth in that. And, and usually we leave it at that. But actually, these verses are a serious warning. Those people who died in the desert without ever making it to the promised land died there because of this sword, because of God's sword. These people, it says, uh, fell, verse 11, fell by their disobedience. They despised God's word. They turned their backs on him stubbornly. And at the same word that made such wonderful promises to them, 
brought about their judgment. God's word is such that none of us is able to avoid its searchlight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is absolutely nothing about you and what you think and what you are that is unknown to God. So it looks to me like there's no hope for us. The two-edged sword, the sword of God's powerful judgment, slices right through to the heart and shows God what we're really like. It exposes us for what we are. Remember when I first heard the gospel properly back in 1960 in a boys' brigade conference, I kept sitting in a different place because the preacher kept looking at me and pointing his words at me. And it was so painful and so particular that I thought my boys' brigade captain had written this preacher a letter about me telling him what I was really like. There were 120 teenage boys, 17 and 18 years of age, in a room uh, about this size, and I kept sitting in a different place, and the Word of God kept exposing my heart to the, to, to the sight of Almighty God and to me, and it was very painful. It was the best pain I ever experienced because it drove me to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. But this word of God, it exposes us for what we are, the evil, angry thoughts we have, the loveless wounds that we inflict upon other people, not least the people near and dear to us, the self-centered instincts that stalk through the, 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 the byways and highways of our internal world. We, we are so intrinsically selfish how can anyone like me hope to gain favor with a holy judge who can see reasons at every level of my experience to condemn me to hell? I deserve to fall in the wilderness and not to make it to the promised land of eternal glory with Jesus Christ. I'm no better than those Hebrews in the wilderness. Well, verses 14 to 16 indicate that our, there is a hope and it's our only hope of redemption. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Can you see that in verse 14? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, it's another powerful picture from the Hebrew Bible. Once a day, uh, sorry, once a year, on one day, one man was allowed to enter either the tabernacle or the temple and go into the very holiest place, a place that was guarded, a place that was forbidden for any man, even a priest to enter. It was the holy of holies. It was the place where God's presence was manifested. It was the secret place of the holy, the holy most holiest place of God's presence. It was the Holy of Holies. Only one man was allowed to enter on only once a year and, and only after he'd offered sacrifices for his own sins and had washed himself clean of all his own sins, only then could he enter carrying with him the blood of the atonement which he sprinkled upon the mercy seat which was thought to be the throne of God Almighty. And there as he sprinkled the blood of a lamb or as it were upon that mercy seat, atonement was made. Forgiveness was given to the children of Israel. Can you see this priest? He's never done it before. 
He's wearing a garment that's got pomegranates and bells around the hem so that people can hear that he's still alive in there. He, he sacrifices for his own sins and then he takes the blood of the atonement and he goes, first of all, he goes into the holy place with the lamp and the, the table here and the, the altar of incense. And then he goes where so few have gone before. He goes through the curtain into the holy place, the holiest place, 15 cubits square. And there he is in the presence of God. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And then he comes out and everybody breathes a sigh of relief <laughs> that he's still alive. That's the picture. That's the picture. Here is a picture of our only hope. Jesus is the Lamb of God who offered himself as a bleeding sacrifice on the cross. There in his death he receives the penalty that our sin deserves. The judgment of God, instead of being poured out on us, is poured out on his Son, the Lord Jesus. The perfectly innocent one receives the guilt of sin and then he's raised from death into new life, still bearing the wounds of crucifixion and he ascends into heaven and sits down in his Father's presence. And there in the heavens, in the Holy of Holies, is a man who bears the marks of slaughter. There in the Holy of Holies is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There in the Holy of Holies is the High Priest who's carried our sin, is the atoning sacrifice into the very presence of God. He was the High Priest who's passed through the heavens and made it to the right hand of God. And there he's made it possible for you and I to be adopted into God's family, to be forgiven of our sins and to receive new life and new hope. So we rest here and we rest now on the finished work of Jesus. We have peace with God here and now. We enter into the eternal rest of a future hope here and now. We are utterly convinced that God has reserved for us in heaven an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and will never fade away, reserved in heaven for us. We have that assurance now. Our king and our champion and our brother has taken his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's passed through the heavens and he's got such a tender and gracious heart and you can go to him, you can go to God through him with great confidence. You won't be rejected. Your body won't die in the desert. You won't be excluded from the promised future of glory. You'll be welcomed joyfully into the presence of God. You can ask for help and strength in the day of trouble. You can, you know, in everything that happens to you, you can go with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace from our Lord Jesus. He knows what it's like to be a human being struggling on earth without sin. And so we can go to him with confidence. This is the, the best of all invitations that you and I can approach God with confidence and joy because our saviour, our brother, our champion, our, our brother is there in the glory for us. My friends, there's no trial, no hardship, no pain in this life that can't be faced with the grace that our tender high priest will give to us if we come to him. 
Let me finish with one of my favorite stories. Those of you who've been listening to me for the last 400 years in my ministry will have heard this story before. It concerns a Scottish missionary called John G. Payton. He said goodbye to his father and he left the, the, uh, the, the shores of Scotland and England on, on a ship to sail to the, uh, to the islands in the Hebrides in the Pacific Ocean called the New Hebrides, he went to an island called Tana, T-A-N-N-A. And there he was to preach the gospel to cannibals, a tribe who worshipped evil spirits. And uh, he arrived, when he arrived after a several months journey, his wife bore him a little baby. It's very tender to me, this, this story, this morning, because I've been anxiously pacing up and down in my mind, if not with my body, this last couple of days as my daughter has been carrying a little baby and bringing her to deliver. So he arrived in Tana and his wife gave birth to a little boy. Within a week, that little boy had been placed in the ground because he died of fever. And uh, very shortly after that, John Payton's wife died and he buried her with his own hands in the same grave. There were no emails, there were no telephones, there were no other missionaries. He was surrounded by cannibalistic tribes. There was no one. And later in his journal, he wrote these words. I, I still remember them. He wrote to me, but he wrote, but for Jesus and the love he vouchsafed me, I would have gone mad and died there beside that lonely grave but for Jesus and the love he vouchsafed me I would have gone mad and died there beside that lonely grave come with confidence to this great high priest and receive grace and mercy in time of need for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, this is the great invitation, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're in a time of need? This is the place to come. And grace is guaranteed here because of the presence of Christ then. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for forgiveness that sometimes we think of this book as a, an important piece of literature, sometimes as an interesting narrative but it represents to us a terrible sword that with one edge makes wonderful promises and with the other edge threatens terrible consequences for unbelief. So we pray that every one of us who has made a beginning to the Christian life will finish strong. Help us, Father, to hold fast to this confidence that we have, this faith that we have until the very end of life. 
And if we are in need at this time, then we pray that we will not harden our hearts because life is painful, but that we will joyfully and humbly come to our great high priest who has a tender heart and will give grace to his children, his brothers and sisters in time of need. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.